Hello, Dementia Matters podcast listeners. Thank you for returning to the podcast during this COVID-19 pandemic. I know you have a lot on your mind, and despite being at home, I know life is not easy. It's an understatement to say we are living in an extraordinary time, but whatever you want to call this ongoing experience, it is asking extraordinary things of us. And life doesn't just stop because of it, which is why this podcast continues. I want to pivot here on Dementia Matters and address important issues affecting those with cognitive impairment and those without during this COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic. I cannot cover all the issues and frankly shouldn't. I encourage you to go to trusted sources for specific information, such as the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, your state and local health department websites, and the Alzheimer's Association. You can also find resources on our website at adrc.wisc.edu, that's adrc.wisc.edu, and that of the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Institute at wai.wisc.edu. For other interesting and important stories on the COVID-19 pandemic, I would recommend my colleague at UW Health, Dr. Jonathan Kohler of the Surgery Set Podcast, who has a special series called The Frontlines of COVID. We will include these links to all these resources in our show notes. For those of you affected by Alzheimer's disease or any cause of cognitive impairment, you know better than anyone that it takes a community to care for those affected and to work on the front lines of treatment, prevention, and cure. What we face with COVID-19 is no different. We all are needed in this fight, and I thank you for whatever it is that you're doing. Take care and be safe. My guest today on Dementia Matters is Dr. Andrea Gilmore Bifkowski, an assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in the School of Nursing. Dr. Gilmore Bifkowski is a researcher and rec scholar in the Wisconsin ADRC. She leads a research program focused on promoting effective and meaningful care for people living with and at risk for dementia, particularly among higher risk and underserved populations. Welcome back, Dr. Andrea Gilmore Bifkowski to Dementia Matters. Thanks so much. I'm so happy to be here. I'm grateful to have you on the show today. And while the circumstances are not ideal and the COVID-19 pandemic continues in full force, I believe your experience and input is critical right now. On today's program, I want to focus on tips for dementia caregivers during this shelter at home or safer at home, or whatever terms people are using right now. And even if those uh, restrictions are not in full force, the information I believe you have is relevant still post-quarantine. On the front of my mind is uh, the importance of acknowledging that this is a really stressful and challenging time for many of us. And this is an important time for us to be generous and and kind to ourselves. As we know, many caregivers are already uh, sometimes uh, facing difficulty with uh, the many important things that they do to support their loved one with dementia. And one thing that I think can be quite helpful uh, to take into consideration is that the person with dementia is also responding to and really working to understand the new normal, just like we all are. Many of the changes in routines and familiar faces will certainly be noticeable to someone with dementia. So one thing that we can take into consideration is how we might anticipate that the 
loved one with dementia we're working with might respond to some of those changes and expecting that there might be some differences in behavior or mood uh, and some different supports that might be needed as that person works to adjust. And would you also say that, you know, while it's difficult for all of us to really cope and address the things that are happening, someone with a cognitive impairment is also going to be confused about the response from their loved one. So they might be responding because of the response of the caregiver. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, there's a fair deal of evidence that demonstrates that the the mood, the level of stress that a caregiver is experiencing is certainly experienced and, and felt by the loved one with dementia. So one thing that I think is really important is to really work um, as best as we can to prioritize our own self-care because we know that that will have consequences for our loved one with dementia. The better that we care for ourselves, uh, the better we are able to support that person. I think there are also, you know, some considerations with regards to recommendations from the CDC and um, public health experts that we need to be mindful of when working uh, with someone with dementia and supporting them. So some of the changes, including more use of hand sanitizer, more thorough hand washing, um, differences in, in what we do when we go outside with um, social distancing and physical distancing from others. Uh, these are things that will require some repetition and gentle reminders um, for this person to become used to. And these are also things that, uh, that someone may notice are different than how we usually behave. So I think we need to think about the words that we use to explain these new and different behaviors in a way that isn't alarming or too confusing to our loved ones with dementia. That's such a good point because there are new behaviors that we're asking of everyone with particular hygiene and social distancing. But I do want to go back to one of the first, you're one of the earlier parts of your answer with self-care. So, because it's such an important thing. We know our caregivers need to take care of themselves as well. So how should caregivers be providing self-care really as a way of direct care to the person that needs their assistance? Absolutely. Uh, it, it's so important. It's important for all of us all the time, but even more so right now. I think, you know, anything that someone can put into place uh, that offers a bit of respite, a bit of laughter, I really feel this is a time to pull out all of the stops and a couple of ideas that I have that I'd like to share with folks are thinking about um, outlets that that really help you um, maybe experience uh, a different form of stimulation. So music is a wonderful example, a wonderful outlet uh, that perhaps if uh, you're interested in music that doesn't seem helpful um, for the loved one with dementia and you're in a close space, maybe you can use some headphones to still listen to music while you're engaged in activities. We know that social contact is really vitally important for our well-being and health, having a sense of connection to others. And Anything you can do to maintain contact with friends, family, neighbors, this could be establishing a new letter writing um, with somebody perhaps that you're used to seeing on, on a normal walk that you can't see anymore. It could be upping the frequency of phone calls with family or friends. And I know that sometimes, you know, when we're caring for someone with dementia, um, it's really hard to carve out time that feels protected, um, especially when we are confined um, in our homes together uh, 
more often. So thinking if there are ways that you can maybe shift your schedule slightly, this might be waking up just a little bit earlier, even 15 or 20 minutes of a bit of quiet time to yourself might make a difference and finding ways to make that special for yourself, whether it's, you know, that you're going to start that time by watching the birds out the window with a little bit of meditation um, or a prayer or maybe writing down some statements about things you're, you're grateful for right now is a, a really nice idea of ways to squeeze things in when it can sometimes feel hard to make those things fit. No, so those are excellent recommendations. And I think one of the things you're also speaking to is that we are com- confined into like a limited space. And that can often lead to problems in and of itself. And so I guess I'm wondering, do you have recommendations for communication strategies since the caregiver and this care recipient are really now in close contact with each other and may not be able to get as much time alone as they're used to. Definitely. I think, you know, some ideas are finding ways to fill some of that void. Um, Again, I want to bring up music as um, a, a wonderful outlet and something that we know often has Uh, benefits for the person with dementia. Uh, Another idea might be um, trying to think of some books on tape or, um, or a podcast perhaps that might be of interest that can provide some background noise for folks for whom it's hard to, um, keep up with uh, offering ongoing stimulation. I know that can be quite tiring sometimes. Other ideas, um, might this might be a time where if you are working with a loved one who really enjoys a particular favorite TV show that, um, that they've watched for, for decades or many years, this might be a time to rerun um, some of those episodes, um, even if you're looking at them repeatedly. So thinking about uh, ways that you can alleviate some of the the burden on uh, yourself as a caregiver for needing to be uh, sort of the source of all entertainment during the day, I think is really, really important during this time. Yeah, those are great recommendations and actually could apply to all of us. It makes me think that maybe I should go back and watch some of my favorite shows, mostly comedies, to kind of bring some laughter into this whole pandemic. <laughs> Perhaps. Perhaps I think humor is, uh, you know, we I use it as a clinician um, in practice very often. Uh, it's important for us to find ways to enjoy the benefits of laughter. Uh, so if you're someone that is into comedies, I know that I there are many. Um, sort of comedy oriented podcasts, I haven't been able to explore many. Um, But also, you know, through through film, and through other media, finding ways to to still have laughter is really important. Doing a little pivot here, Andrea, how is the pandemic impacting caregivers from underserved populations differently? Yeah, that's an important question. And, you know, something that's unfortunate is it appears that we don't as of yet have ideal uh, robust and representative data about how uh, COVID-19 is impacting persons uh, for more underrepresented groups. So thinking particularly about racial and ethnic minority groups, um, individuals who may be immigrants or may be undocumented. There is emerging evidence from several areas to suggest that we're seeing some really significant disparities in how these communities are being affected. And we know that uh, these communities experience a range of other significant health disparities that um, seem to be perhaps in a way increasing risk for exposure to COVID-19. But 
it, it seems likely that there are also other important structural and systemic ways in which um, some underrepresented groups are are being impacted at higher rates. And this includes things like the benefit of being able to stay home. We know that if uh, perhaps you are struggling socioeconomically, you may have individuals in your family who can't stop working, or they may be more likely to work in some of the roles that we're discovering are really critical for our society to um, sustain itself. Uh, I think that The hope is that there will be uh, broader data available um, as states improve their reporting systems. Um, But also, you know, I think there are calls for us to really continue to be mindful of and and re-energize our efforts to address the underlying causes of um, higher rates of of disease in some of these communities, which stem well beyond um, things like pre-existing conditions. Yeah, and I mean, you're speaking to the social determinants of health, which we know is so critical in providing adequate and good care to all the people. It's it's really really essential, and and these are things that um, you know operate um, in terms of geography, where you live, and what you have access to, your financial means, um, aspects of your identity that might change opportunities you've had um, and the way you've been treated, and what we're we're seeing now with COVID nineteen um, is that. You know, these, these things don't go away during a pandemic, and in many ways, they seem to be perhaps exacerbated. So it's certainly very concerning. And, and speaking of systems, when I'm on the phone with some of my patients, a lot of caregivers are expressing fear about having to bring their loved one to the medical clinic or even to the emergency room. I do have any recommendations for caregivers to help them plan for a needed trip to an acute care place like that? Yeah, I definitely do. I think that it's really helpful all of the time to plan for potential emergencies and different types of emergencies. We know that a recommendation uh, at this point is that folks really try to prioritize calling their healthcare provider before um, making a trip uh, into the clinic or into an emergency room. The purpose of that uh, initial call is really to see what can be done to reduce burden on the healthcare system and to ensure um, and provide some clarity around whether or not this requires an emergency room level visit. There is increasing use of uh, telephone-based visits to address many even um, more urgent but not necessarily emergency-level medical challenges. Of course, situations can arise where, you know, a trip to the emergency room really is warranted, and having a plan in place as to who you will notify, how you will get there, a bag that you have packed and ready to bring with you that includes some familiar um, items to the person with dementia, um, in addition to anything, you know, that might serve as a useful distraction during that time, are some things that I think we can have in place so that it feels a bit less alarming when we're encountered with that uh, decision-making and that transition into the clinic or the emergency room. Now, you also have experience working with and training staff in the hospital for people who are admitted from the ER. Now, with our current situation, many families cannot visit their loved one in the hospital due to the strict but but needed precautions of, of limiting exposure. Now, what kind of advice can you give families wanting to communicate with their loved one while hospitalized? Yeah, this is 
a really important question. And, and for me, this is one of the the aspects of this particular situation that that's really, really challenging for all of us to uh, understand and cope with. Uh, we all want um, anyone that we're caring for in the hospital to have access to their families. We know it's so important. So I think some things that we can do when we know that we can't be physically near our really maintaining those lines of communication with the care team. So this includes um, being proactive uh, and and knowing that you have the right uh, to call and and to be connected with your loved one. And this could be as simple as your voice in the background when your loved one is in their room. Um, whether or not they're able to respond to you at that point in time, we know that presence of um, familiar persons is, is a really potent uh, intervention to uh, support people when they are needing acute care um, and they're acutely ill as people in the hospital are. And we are seeing in, in many settings, in particular in nursing homes, um, the use of uh, much broader use of uh, video technology to facilitate um, social connectedness. So while we need to be physically distant, it does not mean we need to be socially distant and separate from one another. And it, it may take um, it may take several calls. It may take some trial and error, but um, but really knowing that you certainly have the right to um, have that connection. I'm glad you mentioned the nursing home in that answer for for hospitalized patients because it is still an institutionalized environment, uh, and technology still is important in the nursing home or assisted living. Do you think there are other considerations that families should consider if their loved one is not acutely ill but is living? in assisted living or a nursing home? Absolutely. You know, I, I mentioned um, letter writing, and I know it, it sounds a little bit old-fashioned, but I think that there there can be something really um, meaningful and therapeutic with that, that form of communication and the words that you share and the time you have to reflect in, in writing someone a letter. Um, you could also consider recording um, a note to someone and having that sent to the nursing home um, or assisted living. Uh, very often, um, staff are accustomed to opening mail in those settings and, and helping folks uh, that, that need that help to digest that communication. And I think that those are other things that you can consider adding in addition to phone and, um, and sort of this video-based communication. And I think, you know, we're, these are uncharted uh, waters for all of us. And I, I do believe that um, providers and nurses and staff in these settings um, are hopefully quite open to, um, hold on, let me try to restate this. Um, these are uncharted waters for, for all of us. And understanding that staff in these settings are also new to these expanded and different forms of communication. And really, this is also a form of care uh, for the individuals living in that setting. Uh, connection to family is incredibly important for well-being and family uh, and quality of life. So um, a little bit of patience, um, and and uh, as we work to advocate for these different forms of communication, um, realizing that everyone's learning. I think that's a really good point, and I think that's a fantastic recommendation. When you think about trying to meet our loved ones where they're at in their cognitive journey, but also just in what, what they're comfortable with, a lot of the people in assisted living and nursing homes happen to be older 
And in that generation, letters were the common form of communication. So I think that's actually a nice throwback to what they would actually be most accustomed to. Absolutely. And, you know, one other uh, idea that I, I had provided to someone I was working with was the idea of going back through some old albums or or other important memorabilia in your family. And this might be a time to, you know, take some of those old pictures out and reflect on, on different times, um, knowing that we uh, are all collectively going to uh, enter a new form of normal when we're through with COVID-19. Um, and we all hope that sooner than later, but this is a time to think of, of some really important memories and perhaps taking some of those pictures and, you know, talking about that memory and sharing that with a loved one in assisted living or a nursing home setting, um, that may trigger some important memories for them, but it also triggers important memories for us that are important to acknowledge and to have some space to appreciate. Oh, that's a wonderful idea. And you're right. Everyone does benefit from being able to reminisce about those things. I guess to end, Angia, what do you want caregivers to know after this pandemic ends and we're on the road to recovery? So I think that, well, there are many, many challenges here, uh, as we also have witnessed and many of us personally experienced the challenges that um, take place in the journey with dementia as well. I think that we also are going to find many things to celebrate, and it's something that is really hard to do, and, and I know that I personally am not, not the best at it, but finding ways to celebrate our resilience, our strength, um, some people might call this grit. Um, and I think that we're all going to grow in ways that we maybe did not anticipate we we might have had to grow. And I think that we're going to have new opportunities to see ourselves and our capabilities in very different ways. And I think that there's something really positive in that. And I think that we can also try to do that along the way individually and with one another. Well said. And, you know, thank you again, Dr. Andrea Gilmore-Bivkowski for joining us on Dementia Matters. And I do look forward to having you on in the future. Thanks so much. Please subscribe to Dementia Matters on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. And rate us on your favorite podcast app. It helps other people find our show and lets us know how we're doing. Dementia Matters is brought to you by the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. The Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center combines academic, clinical, and research expertise from the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and the Geriatric Research, Education, and Clinical Center of the William S. Middleton Memorial Veterans Hospital in Madison, Wisconsin. It receives funding from private university, state, and national sources, including a grant from the National Institutes of Health for Alzheimer's Disease Centers. This episode was produced by Bonnie Nutkinson and edited by Bashir Adin. Our musical jingle is Organisms by Chad Crouch. Check out our website at adrc.wisc.edu. That's adrc.wisc.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at dementiamatters at medicine.wisc.edu. That's dementiamatters at medicine.wisc.edu. Thanks for listening.